Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Hey everyone, how's everybody doing? Good? Great. Um, If we haven't met before, my name is Raul, and I was actually out last week with COVID. It was my first time getting COVID. I made it this far, and then it got me. Took me out for about three days. And it kind of feels like um, hitting puberty later than everyone else. You know, it's like everybody's gone through this thing, everybody's gotten this thing, and you're kind of just like left on the sidelines until it gets you. Um, But anyways, thankfully, I'm okay, um, and I'm excited to be here with you. Um, The past couple weeks, we've been in a series going through the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and in in this series, we're going back to the start. Back to the beginning, we are revisiting our origin story. Marvel heroes have them, and so do you and I. And we didn't just appear on the scene like the Terminator sent from some other world. We were created with care and with purpose. We didn't just come off of an assembly line, but we were handcrafted. And Genesis literally means beginning. And If we're going to know where we're going, we have to look back and see where we've come from. Often, origins and beginnings can be romanticized. We think, well, look how simple things were then, or look at how great things were 20, 30 years ago. But God actually shows us our beginning, not so that we can go back to it, but so that we can remember who we are. And today we're going to look at the second half of Genesis 2. And as we read this, I'd like us to pay attention to what is happening in our bodies. This is a popular passage that has been overly interpreted, misinterpreted. It's been weaponized. It's excused inexcusable behavior. And it has excluded people. But there's also been a lot of faithful readings of this text, and so I'll do my best to draw on that. And so in reading this beginning, notice what feelings are raised in you. And I encourage us not to dismiss these words, but to open ourselves to what the Spirit may be saying and what He may be inviting us into. Beginnings remind us of who we are And today what I want to help us see is that we are God's partners, co-equals, called to live into family. And what we'll notice in reading this story is that this passage is much more than just about 
the first marriage. It actually involves relationship between God and man, between man and creation, between male and female. And so here is Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever he called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God took, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed the the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I often wonder how this scene would play out in the 21st century if Adam and the woman, who at this point her name hasn't been revealed yet, if they were with us, how would they answer the question, how did you guys meet? I imagine Adam to be a hopeless romantic, and he, he would likely say, well, from the second I saw her, I knew that she was the one. And the woman, I imagine, was a bit more level-headed, and she probably weighed her options. She looked around the garden and saw that the dating scene was a bit dry, and so she just went with Adam. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this story raises questions for us. One person I spoke to about this passage asked, why the heck was there a killer tree in the perfect garden? Where are the dinosaurs in this scene? If this is the first marriage, who performed the marriage ceremony? And what animals were on the groom's side? What ones were on the bride's side? But as we've learned, Genesis has its own message. It wants to communicate. It's concerned with questions that post-exilic Israel was asking. And this is written down for a generation that grew up away from their homeland. Israel at this point had been carried off into exile to Babylon, an enemy nation. And the Babylonians, like modern nations, knew that the best way to defeat or subject an enemy without using force is by taking away their history, taking away their story. And so what they did was they drowned out Israel's history by feeding them their own mythologies, their own origin stories, their own culture. But instead, Israel dug their heels in the ground, and they resisted this by writing down their own origin story. And so what we get in Genesis is a form of poetic resistance to empire and to homogeneity. 
the exiles in Babylon were likely concerned about who they were, who their God was, and how to remain true to their identity when everything was saying otherwise. And so this is where we find this passage. And the scene begins with the garden. God calls the man to work and take care of the garden, meaning to till it and to protect. And this is for us as well. We've been entrusted with it, not to exploit it, but to be faithful with it. Notice God has called the man not to productivity. He doesn't say, go and make more gardens, but he says, till and protect this garden. He's calling him to faithfulness. And faithfulness involves bringing out all the good things that reflect who God is, they reflect all of the wonder, all of the beauty of God, and they give meaning to our lives. And in the ancient Near East, the gods actually avoided doing work by shuffling it over to the humans. But in Genesis, that's not the case. God isn't giving us work so that he can take it a vacation. He isn't giving us work so that he can kick his feet up and watch Stranger Things 4. Instead, he invites us to work alongside of him as partners, as co-laborers, not as robots, not as slaves, but as teammates working together to bring about something good. And this is what Genesis establishes. It establishes that we are partners with God made for work. But then as the scene progresses, there's a problem. Verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And at this point, I'm picturing Adam is looking like Tom Hanks in Castaway. He's probably talking to some coconuts or volleyballs. And God looks and says, All right, he needs someone else. And up until this point, everything created has been good, and particularly very good when the first human is created. But here is an instance where we find that something is not good, that isolation is not good, that loneliness is not good, that we're meant for community, we're meant for relationship. God wired humans for this, and all of us long for togetherness. It's woven into the fabric of our being. And what we see here is that intimacy takes like species, humans and humans. God brings a man to the animals, but, no, but sees that they wouldn't do. Although, if you have a pet, you know that snuggling them is a great dopamine hit. But God said, you know what? I'm, I'm going for more than just dopamine hits. So, so he goes for um, making the woman because intimacy and togetherness must be fostered between people. And in our, modern wor- in our modern world that values autonomy and individualism, we've missed this step in our faith. I read a tweet recently that said, I need autonomy more than I need God. And it reminded me of our office move. Um, We just moved offices recently. We were meeting in Silver Lake, and our office is right across the street from Bolt, which is dangerous because they have a $3 happy hour during the week. Um, But as with every move, 
it involves several trips to Ikea and making numerous purchases, and we've spent the last three weeks assembling furniture. And maybe you've been in this situation, but have you ever, in putting together furniture, gotten three or four steps ahead and then realized you missed a step? I think it's possible to do this with life and with faith. We can have all the right bits of life and faith, but miss the essential step that is intimacy and togetherness. Because we're made for togetherness. Genesis shows us that this missing bit is actually not good for us. That putting autonomy above everything else will give us freedom, but it may cost us relationships. And at this point, If we look at Adam, we see that he had all the freedom, he had all the autonomy, and still, God says, it is not good. There's something new that has to happen. And so God puts the man to sleep, and he makes from his side the woman. And in Hebrew, he makes isha, woman, from ish, man. He doesn't make her from his head as to have authority over the man. He doesn't make her from her foot, from his foot as to be subjected to him. But God makes her from his side, implying that they are equal. Equally valued, equally gifted, equally called, equally loved. And the term helper here is often one that gets misunderstood. At face value, it implies that the helper is the supporting character. That the helper supports the main character in his vision, in his dreams, in his causes. But that's actually not what this word implies. It is much deeper than that. The helper in Hebrew is the word ezer, um, which is regularly translated to support or help. But nowhere in the Bible does the use of this term imply that one is less than or that one is subject or inferior. For example, here's Exodus 18.4. This is what it says. It says, "My, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. And in Psalm 10.14, it says, The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. And lastly, in Psalm 118.7, it says, The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. And so if Azer is also used to describe God, then it cannot mean that God is subject to humans, right? And neither does the use of Azer suggest that women are subject to men. <laughs> In this case, helper refers to companion. And the sentence makes much more sense when you read it this way, right? Verse 8, it says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion suitable for him. Women and men, co-equal companions. Not a servant, not subject, but equal partners in God's creation. Not man having dominion over the woman, not man having authority over the woman, but man submitting to the woman and the woman submitting to the man. Mutual participation, mutual partnership in God's invitation to work and till the land. And maybe you grew up hearing otherwise. 
Maybe you grew up hearing that men have the primary role and women are stuck to play the supporting character. But in this passage, God calls the man, but it is beyond the man to fulfill the call on his own. He needs the woman, just as we need one another. And if we're to be who God invites us to be, then we can't exclude one another. The world has too many problems, and we can't exclude half of the workforce from doing what he's called us to do. God calls women and men together, each with their own gift, each with their own strengths, each with their own perspectives, to bring about the flourishing that God intends for us. And so what this passage is saying is that you and I are called together. That God excludes no one on the basis of gender. And when Adam sees the woman, he is overjoyed. He breaks out in a song, and he literally says, species of my species. Isn't that romantic? (laughs) I dare someone to try that line on their next date and then report back and see how it goes. Species of my species. I'll write that on my next anniversary card. But then there's a break in the scene, and it's like the narrator zooms out to give us a social commentary on the relationship between man and woman. And it reads, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, I'm aware that um, a Sunday sermon isn't the ideal place to talk about Christian views on marriage. The subject is too long and too emotive, and Christians across the globe believe different things about who can marry who and what exactly marriage is. And most certainly in this room, there will be a conflicting range of opinions. However, this, pa- this passage raises the subject, and so I want to address it briefly. But this will not be about who can marry who. Rather, I want to speak about what this verse tells us about God's relationship with people, married or not. And hopefully these are things we can all agree on, and hopefully they will challenge and encourage us. I received an email once asking if bread holds a biblical view of marriage. And I knew what the person meant, but I thought, hang on, are they asking what what they're asking may not actually be what they're asking. Because which biblical view of marriage are we talking about here? Are we talking about Jesus's? Are we talking about Paul's? Are we talking about the Old Testament? Are we talking about the New Testament? But since we're in Genesis, we'll go with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, polygamy was common. It was never explicitly encouraged or condemned. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, all the patriarchs had multiple wives. And one place in the Mosaic law actually mandated it. It said that widows should marry the brother of their deceased husband, even if that brother was already married. And this was because wives and children were considered property of the husband. And so to be married is to have economic benefits and access to security, which women at this time weren't able to attain on their own. 
And so if this is a biblical view of marriage, um, then the answer is no. We at Bread do not hold to it. <laughs> because things have changed, thankfully. In Jesus' time, in the first century, polygamy more or less died out because of Roman law. They had outlawed it. They saw the Jewish custom of polygamy and taking multiple wives as something that was repulsive. However, there were a few notable sects within Judaism who independently forbade polygamy. And they would add to this passage the word to. And so this passage read more like, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, the two isn't original to the book of Genesis. They added it in. But nevertheless, this edited, non-original version of Genesis is the text that Jesus quotes in Matthew. When he's asked about divorce by the Pharisees. And so Jesus moves to a monogamous ideal that we know of today and away from the idea that um, the Pharisees held at the time, which was one that held to multiple wives. But Jesus doesn't say anything about the Mosaic law of widows marrying their brother-in-law. And so it's impossible to know whether or not Jesus agreed to this. But Paul, however, does make a pronouncement about widows. He says, actually, widows should get married. And suggesting that it should be to a believer. But what both Paul and Jesus agree on and make relatively explicit references to is actually the idea that marriage might, that singleness might be more preferable. And while Jesus appeals to Genesis and the beginning with regards to teaching on marriage, ultimately, and most importantly, Jesus says that when his kingdom is here, when his kingdom is fully present, when we get to heaven, that actually marriage and singleness will be fully done away with. And this is why the questions he's asked about marriage and divorce become secondary matters. Because ultimately in heaven, where we're all going, these issues are going to fall by the wayside. And so let's also not forget that Jesus, the model human, was never married at all. However, God clearly loves marriage. From the beginning and throughout the New Testament, this mystical spiritual union between two people is held up as the pinnacle of um, human relationship and a reflection of God's relationship with the world that he loves. But that doesn't mean that married people are in some way spiritually better off than unmarried people. And so ultimately, singleness and marriage is both blessed by God. And given that there are some of us here who are married and many of us who are not, for now, let's look beyond the mechanics of marriage. Who should get married to who and why? And let's see that this verse actually tells us that there is purpose 
that we have purpose, whether we're married, wanting to get married, or none of the above. And so what is that purpose? Remember, Genesis was written to a community that was coming out of exile. And so for the exiles coming out of Babylon, making families was how they ensured their people weren't wiped from the earth. And having children was core to their identity, and it depended on these marriages. And if we zoom out, we see that throughout the Old Testament, God's blessing and promise was carried through physically having children. It depended entirely on procreation. But in the New Testament, this changes. In the New Testament, the blessing and promise of God is not carried through a bloodline, but it is carried through the Spirit. God includes people outside of the bloodline into his blessing. He includes people incapable of producing a bloodline into his promises. The Old Testament was God building his family through physical means, and the New Testament is God building his family through spiritual means. And at times, even Jesus is very dismissive of the nuclear biological family. At one point when his brothers and mom are calling him to come outside to him, he dismisses them and says, actually, these disciples are my family. He publicly rejects the call, and using a rhetorical device, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate your mother and father. And so Jesus isn't holding on to this idea. Instead, he says, my family is through the Spirit. And so whether we're married or not, this has significant implications for all of us because Christian family isn't based on biology. It is based on the spirit. And family making is what we're called to. But Jesus says, it is through my spirit. Jesus actually redefines what this passage means for us as a species. It means that oneness with him and oneness with his spiritual family isn't just reserved for those that are married, but single parents, alternative families, single adults, widows, orphans can all be welcomed into the oneness of God's spirit. And spiritual family making doesn't look a particular way either, and it doesn't have to. Hispanic theologian Miguel de la Torre raises a question for us to think about. He says, if marriage is more than simply having children, then race or gender or ethnicity of the participants ceases to be important. And it ceases to be important because in Jesus, all dividing walls have been torn down. And Paul says that all of us are one in Christ Jesus. And I'm aware that the church has often narrowly defined family and has excluded most and catered to a few. But Genesis reminds us that all of us are made for family, that in God, the promise and blessing of family is for everyone. There isn't one way to be a family but the Spirit makes it possible for each of us to experience oneness in God's family. 
And if we look at God's family, we see that God's family is blended. God's family is big, and there's room for you. There is no hierarchy. There is no patriarchy. There is no isolation. There is no exclusion. What, what marks God's family is love. And Jesus says that people will know you by the love that you have for one another. And I'm aware that, some, that for some of us, this might be a difficult thing to grasp onto because maybe we didn't grow up in a family that is marked by love. But in God's family, we're all learning to receive the love of God. Every one of us has a love deficiency, and it's why we need the Spirit to show us just how loved we are. And we were praying for people yesterday, um, as these stories mentioned, and being in that, being in God's presence, being in this space, it was like entering a bubble of love, love that was unconditional, love that was unearned, love that was safe and pure and just heavenly love. And it was so powerful because this is what we're made for. But also notice that we don't, we don't just need the love of Jesus. We also need the power of Jesus. If I were to walk up to a kid in my family who I dearly and deeply love, and if I were to take them, that is kidnapping. It's just a fact. Um, But if I have the authority and the power of the state, then that makes it adoption. And what God does for us is he doesn't kidnap us, he adopts us because he has all the power, all the authority, and he says, you are my child. Come into the oneness of my family. This is who God is. And so maybe we've excluded ourselves from it because we've heard that this passage, we've heard this passage in a way that maybe doesn't make room for us, or maybe we've labeled ourselves as secondary because we are not married, or perhaps family has been something that is really painful, and God wants to undo the pain and show us how loved we are. And so wherever we are, God welcomes us into his family. Jesus redefines family and says, you have an equal part in it. He wants you and I to live into the family that he's created. And so as we mentioned in this series, we can't go back to the way things were. But we look back to see who we are. And who we are is God's partners, God's co-equals, called to live into the family that he's building. Amen.